We uh, are continuing our series called uh, Walk This Way, How, what it means to walk with Jesus. And we've been doing this for about five weeks and have a few more weeks to go. And we've been looking at uh, the life of Saul and other characters that are in the Acts story that give us clues as to what it means to walk with Jesus. And today, we'll look at four aspects that we see in Christians that live in Antioch. And so I want to um, read just a few verses with you, Acts chapter 10, or I'm sorry, 11, uh, beginning in verse 19, and then we'll dig into it. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that is when Stephen was stoned, traveled as far away as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, speaking the Lord Jesus, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them's name was Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In April of 1940, the German Nazis rolled in in tanks and troop carriers to Denmark. This was the next country that they would occupy and control. They controlled Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland. They soon would take under their uh, control Belgium and Holland, Norway and France, but now it was Denmark's turn. And they did what they always did. When they came into a nation that they would occupy, they put out an order, and that was that every Jew, even if you were just partially a Jew, you must wear a, a star of David, a yellow star of David on your clothing. Whenever you left the house, whenever you were dressed, you had to have this yellow star of David on your clothing. The Nazis said if you were Jewish and didn't wear a star, you would be immediately killed. Now, obviously, if you had a star, their plan was to round you up and send you off out of country into a concentration camp. And so this was what Denmark was facing. And the problem with Denmark was they had no great military. They lacked people with fighting experience. Their king was already in the late 70s, early 80s. He was much more a figurehead than a real potentate. Their defenses were weak. They were unable to resist. And so, as soon as the order was given, King Christian X began to walk the streets of Copenhagen. 
he began to talk with the citizens of his nation. And he said to them, I want you to do this. And he described it to them. And then he said, I want you to tell everyone else. And they put out this order that while the Germans said only Jews were to wear stars of David, his order was that every person in Denmark was to wear a yellow star of David. These were boys, girls, men, women. All wear a star. And you know what happened? They all did. For four years, everyone in Denmark who was a citizen of that country wore a yellow star. Now think of the risk of that. By wearing a star, you were saying, I'm Jewish, even if you weren't. These were strangers in many cases. Many Danes didn't even know a Jew, and yet they wore a star. And you know something? The only nation where that order, that Nazi order, for just Jews to wear the star, and then they could persecute, only Denmark escaped it. There was no Jewish genocide in Denmark because people were willing to take a risk on people they didn't even know. Next month is the Olympics. I think it's interesting that 60 years ago, a man did something that's never been done before. He won a gold medal in the pole vault in the 52 Olympics in Helsinki and then in the Melbourne Games in 1956. His name's Bob Richards. He's an American. The interesting thing was after he won the Olympic medal in Helsinki, he set a world record. But after that, he couldn't seem to raise his height. He was unable. He worked out more hard, harder. He had many coaches, many people advising him. He couldn't get it. And during that time, that four-year period, there was a Dutchman named Cornelius Ward, Warrendam who actually surpassed the world's record by eight inches. So finally, in the last year of those four years, after training for years and being unable to increase his height, he decided that he would place a call. He called Cornelius and he said, Sir, I need your help. Would you be willing to coach me? Would you be willing to look at my technique and give me some advice? Would you be willing to train with me? And guess what the Dutchman said? Come on over. And so Bob Richards got on a plane and he flew to Holland. And he spent two weeks with the Dutchman. And all through those two weeks, they talked about technique. The Dutchman pointed out certain things he wasn't doing properly. But Richard said later, the most important thing was what he said before he got on a plane to come back to America. He said, Bob, I believe in you. Months later in Melbourne, Australia, Bob Richards eclipsed the world's record of that Dutchman by eight more inches. Now think of that. Who in the world would help a competitor like that? What would cause a person in Holland to say, okay, I'll help an American beat my world record? What would cause that? What would cause a nation full of Danish people to say, yes, I will be a Jew from now until the war is over? What would cause that? Some say the, ability to, the inability to say no. Others say peer pressure. Others say it's just pure altruism. We know for the person that Luke talks about in this text, it's none of those things. It's something far deeper, something far greater. His name's Joseph. He's from Cyprus, 200 miles away from Jerusalem. The first time we read about him is in Acts chapter 4, where he's selling his property and giving the proceeds to the apostles in the Jerusalem church. 
Now, you need to know that by chapter 4 of Acts, it's thought that the Jerusalem Christian Church numbered more than 5,000 people. And when you were a Christian back then, it meant that you could no longer buy and trade. If you had a job, you lost it. You were a marked person. You were considered a heretic. You were considered someone who was destined for extermination. And so what does Joseph do? He sells his property and gives the proceeds to the help of those in need. And the need was great. And he's the first one to do it. A Jewish Christian from Cyprus named Joseph sells what he has and gives it so that others won't starve. Now, what do we know about him? Well, we know he's a Levite from the tribe of Levi, which means the Levites were those who served the priests in the temple. You couldn't serve in the temple. You couldn't enter the temple and be in service to the priests unless you were a Levite. But we also know that according to Jewish law, no Jew born outside the boundaries of Israel who was a Levite could come and serve in the temple. The Jews in Israel believed that Jews born outside of Israel were sort of second-class citizens. In fact, they were actually uh, fairly prejudiced against them. And so, let's think of this. The first one to sell his property is a Jew who's born outside of Jerusalem, who comes to the Jerusalem church and gives his proceeds to the apostles. Think of the guts. Think of the lack of resentment. Think of the lack of bitterness. Think of the lack of prejudice. You know, Matthew said it in, or Matthew records what Jesus said in chapter 6, where Jesus says, Take no thought for your life. What you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink. And that's exactly what Joseph does. He takes no thought of it. He lays down his own interests for the interests of others. I love what Charles Spurgeon said once. He said, I'm so glad that when God chose me, it was before I was born, because if it was after I was born, he would never have chosen me. Now, why would Spurgeon say that? He said it because he knew the human heart. He knew how even as Christians, we can be prejudiced, we can be small-minded, we can be critical. The Bible calls us saints, and yet so many of us don't really exhibit a lot of sainthood. You know that word sainthood has really evolved over time? Now most people, when they think of saints, they think of stained glass windows and, and people that are memorialized there. But you know the basic definition of a saint back when it was first coined? Here it is. A saint is a dead sinner who has been revised and edited. And that's Joseph. He's become a Christian. He's laid down his life. He's in a sense died to himself. He's been revised and edited. And he becomes a part of this church in Jerusalem... And they see this guy living a life of giving, giving of his mind, giving of his heart, giving of his whole substance, giving of himself, and they rename him. They say, no longer are we going to call you Joseph, we're going to call you Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. Now that word encouragement in English comes from a Greek word, parakletos. 
Parakletos is a word that's used 14 times in the New Testament, and almost every place it's referring to God. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away, but don't fear, I'm sending you the Parakletos. Who's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm leaving, but I'm sending you the Comforter, the Encourager. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Parakletos. Then in 1 John chapter 2, John says this, When you sin, or if you sin, if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father. The word advocate there is the same Greek word, parakletos. Who's he talking about? Jesus, the ascended Christ. You have an advocate with the Father. Now think of this. Almost every time in the Bible the word parakletos is used, it's referring to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, or the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and yet the Christians at Jerusalem call this man Joseph Barnabas, son of the parakletos, son of encouragement, son of comfort. They see in him a characteristic that's uncommon. They see in him a guy who's acting a whole lot like God. So think of this. By chapter 11... Word comes back to Jerusalem, to this church, that a revival has broken out in Antioch. Now, Antioch's 500 miles away. The church started there by Christians who fled after Stephen is stoned, and they went various places, but some of them went to Antioch. And the rumor comes back to the church that there's a revival going on in Antioch. And so what does the church do? First of all, they disbelieve it. And the reason they disbelieve it is because they ask the question, how is it possible that the Spirit of God could do anything in a town like Antioch? Antioch was 500,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it was known for its corruption. It was Vegas on steroids. It was a moral cesspool. In fact, there was a river that flowed through that city, and it emptied into the river that flows through Rome. And, the, and certain philosophers said, the reason Rome is so corrupt is because we're connected by water to Antioch. Antioch was a corrupt place. And the Christians in Jerusalem can't believe that there's this spiritual revival going. Is it really true or is it phony? We need to find out. Who do they send? Barnabas. Why do they send him? Why do they send him? He's not even a Jew from Israel. Luke tells us it's all about his walk. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the mines that he finds in Antioch. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. These are Greeks who have become Jews who many wouldn't even speak to regarding the gospel, and yet there were men who came from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they would speak to these Greeks. If you ever had this question, you are thinking as I did this week, why does Luke tell us so much about Antioch? And he does. He tells us quite a bit. The reason is because Luke probably was from Antioch. Remember, he was a doctor. He probably practiced medicine in Antioch. And there are those who speculate that some nameless 
normal, ordinary person, not a pastor, not a teacher, not an apostle, not a religious purveyor, some normal person began to talk to Luke about Jesus and he came to trust him. We don't know. We don't know a whole lot about Luke. But you know what we do know? We know that when Barnabas arrives, he finds non-pastors, non-missionaries, non-evangelists, non-apostles speaking to others in such power about Jesus Christ that people are coming to saving faith. And I love the word Luke uses here. He says speaking. They were speaking. He uses it twice. That word speaking means natural conversation. In other words, what he's saying is, when Barnabas gets there, he begins to find that people, ordinary people, are talking about Jesus all of the time. They're not preachers that are preaching. They're not teachers that are teaching. They're not, you know, apostles or leaders who are leading. These are nameless, ordinary people who are telling others about Jesus. I have a friend of mine in the North Hills who's been a Christian psychologist for nearly 40 years. He has a PhD from the University of Texas. I, he's, one of, he's in my pantheon of heroes because I can't believe he didn't fall asleep. I mean, 40 years, he's had more than 5,000 patients or clients, and he listened to them for 50 minutes at a clip. And I said to him, how in the world do you stay awake? And he's able to. But one time I said to him, how, in all of that talk... How do you really find out what the essence of the problem is? He said, you know, you need to know this. In my experience, over 40 years with 5,000 clients, I can tell you that you, should, you need to listen very attentively to the first 5 to 10 minutes of their talk. They will tell you in the first 5 to 10 minutes the nexus of their problem, the issue. In other words, people will tell you what's on their mind. Now, sometimes we hide, sometimes we mask it, sometimes we're quiet, but it doesn't take long. Most of us have very little filters when it comes to talking about what's on our minds. What's Barnabas see in Antioch? He sees that these people have Jesus on their mind. They're not apostles, they're not prophets, they're not evangelists, they're not teachers, they're not clergy, they're regular people who are possessed with Jesus. And for them, it's not just a belief system, it's a way of life. He sees their minds. And he hears what's on them. Second, notice their hearts. Look at verse 23. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now what does that mean, he saw the grace? When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, what's he mean? Do you know, ever heard of Foggy Bottom in D.C.? By George Washington University, just north of the State Department, further north of the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, it's a place that kind of sits low and used to have a lot of fog called Foggy Bottom. When they built the metro the subway system, they have a stop at Foggy Bottom. It's one of the most populated stops during the day. And about nine years ago, on a Friday morning in January, a guy went down to that underground platform. He opened up his violin case. He took out a violin and began to play six pieces of Bach for 55 minutes. Just 
started playing. It's said that over 5,000 people went on that platform that day to get to work. You know, it took five minutes for anyone to stop. An older guy stopped and listened for about 30 seconds, and he went on. About three minutes later, a woman had a little child, a little girl, a little younger than Jordan, and she broke loose from her mother and went right over and just watched the bow. And like any good mother, she came over, grabbed her daughter, let's go, took off. A few minutes later, a woman, an older woman, walked by and dropped a dollar in his violin case. In 55 minutes, only 20 people stopped, and nobody stopped longer than about a minute. And when he was finished, nobody applauded, nobody recognized him, nobody asked for an autograph. He put his violin back in the case and removed the $32 that were left there. And yet two nights earlier, he had played in Boston to a full house. That instrument was the same one, a $3.5 million violin. His name is Joshua Bell, arguably the greatest violinist alive today. Now let me ask you, why didn't they know him? Why didn't they recognize him? Some people say, well, he was out of context. You didn't expect to see him on the foggy bottom platform. Others say, no, it wasn't that. They were in a hurry. They had to get to work. Really? Let's stop for coffee. The reason they didn't recognize him is because they didn't have the music in their heart. They didn't have a heart for the music. You know why the Christians in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch? Because they knew he had a heart for Jesus. And look what Luke says. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God... He was glad and exhorted them. Luke uses three words in that sentence. Grace, gladness, and exhortation or encouragement. All three of those words relate to God. The grace of God, the joy and gladness of God, and the exhortation or the comfort or the encouragement of God. In other words, when Barnabas heard what he heard and saw what he saw, their minds and their hearts, his mind and heart leapt. They had synergy. What was in him was in them. And he knew it and he was rejoicing. And what did he do? He encouraged them to continue. He encouraged them to be faithful. And then what does he do? When the evangelism explodes, he goes all the way to Tarsus and gets Saul after a decade on the bench and says, come on back. And they're teach for a year. And then third and finally, notice the selves that he finds. Look at verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. I mean, do you, do you get this? A prophet named Agabus comes from Jerusalem. He says, the Lord has told me there's a worldwide famine coming. And it's already started in the impoverished in Jerusalem. And so what do these people in Antioch do? They do exactly what Barnabas did in chapter 4. They sell their stuff and give it to Barnabas and Saul to take back to Jerusalem. 
You see, Barnabas put his money where his mouth was because his mouth was there because his head and heart were there. And they do exactly the same thing. There's no indication that Barnabas has to say, do it, they do it. And notice, this isn't easy. The prophet said there will be a worldwide famine. You know what that means? It'll be a famine in your town just as every other town. At a time when Christians should maybe be thinking of their own family, their own household, uh, storing the reserves like Joseph, what do these people do? They give it away. They have very little concern for their own security. In fact, they do exactly what Barnabas did. They sell their stuff and they give it to the Christians in Jerusalem. So why does the church in Jerusalem send Barnabas? Because they recognize in him the ability to recognize in others the principal gift that the Holy Spirit generates in every Christian, and that is a spirit and a gift of giving. This week I heard from someone that there are people at Hebron that think I talk about money all the time. Even my wife knows that's not true. But if I do talk about money all the time, it's because that's what the text gives us. Isn't that exactly what's being said here? They give of their minds, they give of their hearts, and then they give of their substance. They give of themselves. They lay themselves down. They are going to experience famine, and yet they give their stuff away as they are able. You know, you can search the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and you can find people in there that are walking closely with the Lord. And you know what you always find in them? Always. Men and women. Jew and Gentile, you always find a giving mind, a giving heart, and a giving of self. Just like those Danes gave to the Jews in Denmark. Just like that Dutch pole vaulter helping Bobby Richards. You see, when it comes to walking with Jesus, it really isn't measured by how much you give. It's measured by how much you keep. Jesus gave it all. Don't you think that's what he means when he says, take my yoke upon you? Of all the symbols of Christianity, there's no symbol more well-known than the cross. What is the cross? It's God giving his life for us. Walking with Jesus, giving of your mind, giving of your heart, giving of yourself to Jesus and to others. Think about that. Amen.